Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, July 18th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Margot Sanger-Katz from the New York Times. Good morning. Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello, everybody. And Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Hi. Thank you all for coming in on this extremely hot day. Uh, and our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. Also, if you have questions you'd like us to answer, we'll have another Ask Us Anything in August. Send them to us at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. So... Joe Biden unveiled his health plan this week. It feels like a long time ago by now. Uh, It's a curious combination of some very predictable, moderate things that would build on the Affordable Care Act and some things that would be really, really, really hard to pass, like public funding of abortion. Somebody explain some of the big things in Biden care, um, and then we can sort of talk about some of the more controversial ones. What's sort of the basics here? Kimberly. Well, it was really interesting because when Biden announced he was running for office, he made it very clear that, you know, he was going up against Trump. But in his health care rollout, it was more like he was going up against Democrats who support Medicare for all. And he really cast Medicare for all as an attack on the Affordable Care Act. So what his bill would do is to um, extend subsidies to people who are on Obamacare. So a lot of people are finding these plans really expensive because they don't get federal help to pay for uh, their premiums. And that's if you earn what like a hundred thousand dollars a year for a family of four. If you weren't above that, you you don't get any help. Exactly, exactly. So that can become you know quite expensive, especially if you put in deductibles and and those kinds of things. Um, and he also wants to add a public option, which you know will have a bunch of resistance from the healthcare industry. Um, but he essentially pitched it as you know just a, another choice that people could make, a Medicare like plan that they could choose instead of their employer plan instead of an Obamacare plan and just kind of providing that extra, you know, potentially less expensive option for people to uh, buy into. And that public option would go automatically to people who are currently in the, the Medicaid gap, as right. they call it. He has it. a way. If a state is still refusing, there's, what, 18-something like 14, 14, I think 14 it states is. that are refusing to, have so far refused to expand Medicaid, and a few that have voted to do it but are still in the process of exactly what it's going to look like. Um they would be covered. There would be the end of this coverage gap of people who are, you know, too poor to get in the ACA and too, in big, big quotes, rich um, to get traditional Medicaid or don't qualify for other reasons. So that gap, he closes the gap through the public option. But I also wanted to just sort of come back to where Julie started describing this as a moderate plan because this plan is radical by the standards of 10 years ago when the Obamacare. Uh, debate was going I, I on. I had someone this week call call it radically moderate. 
Right. I mean, public option died 10 years ago. and the, It passed the House. You couldn't get through right. the Senate. I mean, it was, it was close. I mean, I think radi- radical maybe overstates it. It was, it was certainly further it, than the Democrats whole, were willing to go in 2010. It was, it's, it's more generous in subsidies. It covers everybody. It has a public option. It does a bunch of other stuff. And it is just another example of how the labels have changed, that, that the entire debate in the Democratic Party has moved to the left and that there's a, and and some of you know we we watch this circular firing squad. Um, they all want more coverage. They among all, Democrats, uh, Democrats, they all want more coverage. They all want a larger role for government um, and tax dollars in providing that coverage. They all want universal coverage. The fight becomes uh, over single payer versus multi payer. To be a little bit technical about it, right? I mean, there and 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 some ideological. There are deeper ideological fights about the role of private insurance. But what we're now seeing is the you know, more moderate conservative plan is still many degrees to the left of where the country, the Democratic Party, was a decade ago. Setting aside this thing about uh, the people in the Medicaid coverage gap. Um, It's remarkable, actually, how similar this plan is to the plan that Hillary Clinton ran on in 2016, which is, uh, you know, obviously in keeping with everything we've said so far, it's to the left of the Affordable Care Act. It's interesting to see it being described as a very moderate plan uh, because it does go further than the Affordable Care Act. But I also think this is the contours of what um, Senator Biden, Vice President Biden, is describing it's like not that unfamiliar to us. You know, this is something that the kind of establishment uh, Democratic wonks who have uh, toiled away at the Affordable Care Act and crafting it and implementing it and thinking about the places where it falls short. They think that these are the things that are needed to shore it up. Um, Another point of comparison is that uh, it's relatively similar to something that California is trying to do. So this idea of increasing the generosity of subsidies for people who make a little bit more money and also trying to decrease the cost sharing for certain populations. That's something that's being experimented with at a state level. Uh, It's also true in Vermont and Massachusetts, although not in exactly the same way. So, uh, you know, I think of this as being a kind of tinkering, optimizing, sort of the kind of uh, Democrat establishment nerd uh, solution to the problems with our healthcare system. And it is, I think, quite different than the more radical, transformative Medicare for all kinds of proposals that we're seeing that are imagining a kind of new system, a much broader role for public health insurance than exists today. I think one of the things we didn't mention was that it would, in, in a very nerdy way, because it would base the subsidies on the gold plans instead of the silver plans, but that would basically give people access to plans that are more comprehensive, that have that may have higher premiums, but they'll get subsidies, but they'll have lower deductibles and lower out-of-pocket spending, which has, I think, been one of the biggest complaints about the Affordable Care Act is that you get insurance and then you can't afford to use it. Yes, but also we have heard Joe Biden call this uh, you know, a big deal. So any of us who wonder if he knows how to self-edit, yes. <laughs> I'm I'm curious though about some of the the things that are that seem you know I, I think the the appeal the alleged appeal of this plan is that it would be easier to pass than Medicare for all but there are an it's awful still a lot, lot of, of money well it's not just the money it's the some of the landmines people are already complaining that if you extend it to the people in the Medicaid gap 
at, at full federal cost, you're now punishing the states that expanded Medicaid because they're now paying 10 percent of the cost of that expanded population. But the states that held out aren't going to pay anything. It's potentially I mean, you, this the proof would have to be in the pudding. But I think it's also potentially disadvantaging the Medicaid beneficiaries in the states that already expanded relative to the people who would get this new program. Uh, obviously, it's a new public option that doesn't exist and we don't know exactly what it will look like. But certainly if it's very similar to Medicare and if it leveraged Medicare's provider network, uh, you know, patients who use Medicare have access to a much wider range of clinicians than do patients who have Medicaid in most states. And so you might imagine that people who get this kind of new Medicare-like Medicaid fill-in uh, might be able to go to a lot more doctors than people in the expansion states. And that might be seen as a kind of inequity as well. But there's also different cost sharing. So, I mean, you know, I don't think that's the killer. I mean, because states have the right to change their um, I mean, they could all go into a, some modified version of, can, of Arkansas. I mean, that's that's not what. But also, they can opt into the public option too. Right. Apparently, I mean, if they want, right. but, and they would get, they would have to pay. But they would have to continue. That to pay would the keep 10%. a lot of economists busy working it out, it and would. state legislators <laughs> fighting it out. That's not going to be. That might be a talking point. That's not going to no. determine the fate of this piece of. If it ever gets to that point where it becomes a piece of legislation, there are a thousand other things that they can fight over that are probably bigger. Yeah, and you know, obviously, including the the ongoing role. Of, of private insurance, which is sort of the, the boogeyman for the Democratic left right now. And although, you know, those of us who cover health care know that, it, you know, there are a lot of people making money off of health care, not just insurers. So, And two things that really hung up the Affordable Care Act being abortion and um, undocumented immigrants. Um, now now that the entire Democratic field for president has decided that um, they're, they're, they need to come out four square for abortion, including government funding of abortion, and for some sort of coverage of people who are undocumented, although the Biden plan is a little bit unclear on that. And Biden himself has been a little bit unclear. But I wonder, I mean, the Democratic Party has moved to the left. Do you think Congress has changed? There are, fewer, there are a lot fewer anti-abortion rights Republic, uh, Democrats, Democrats. Yes, in that's both the true. House and the Senate. I think there may be only one in the House now, one or two. There's one or two. And and very few in the Senate. So, And there are a couple, uh, a dwindling number, but there are a couple of pro-abortion rights um, Republicans. Republican. So um, the country is probably more or less where they've been on abortion. Maybe there's some signs in the polls that they're actually as the abortion debate, which we'll presumably get to in a minute. Um, that there's a little. There's one poll that came out this week that shows some shift, but basically the public's been split over abortion since Roe v. Wade or before, and that the Congress has gotten more polarized on abortion and 40 million other issues does not mean that the country is. Um, but they're trade-offs. I mean, if people, you know, we don't, I mean, abortion almost killed Obamacare in the House, but not, that's not what stopped it. The, the, that was not what the public fight was about at the time. That's true. And on immigration, my understanding for the Biden uh proposal is that uh, people who are living in the country illegally wouldn't actually be uh, getting you know, government funding for their health care. They would be allowed to buy in to the exchanges, but that's pretty much where it stops. Um, California had considered a move like this a few years ago. They had filed a waiver to uh, under the Obama administration, which got carried into the Trump administration. So when, it was, when Trump was elected, they ended up pulling that waiver. Um, and instead, they chose to um, extend Medicaid um, to uh, uh, younger adults. Um, and so that's, you know, how they went about it. 
And while Democrats on the presidential campaign trail are busy talking about building on the Affordable Care Act, the House this week, in bipartisan fashion, voted to repeal a key tax that's supposed to fund the program and bring down health costs. It's called the Cadillac tax. It's a 40 percent excise tax on what are deemed the most generous employer health plans. But Congress keeps delaying its effective date, and now the House at least wants to make it go away entirely. In 2010, when this passed as part of the Affordable Care Act, it was considered an important, uh, if controversial, piece of the package. What has changed? Margot, I see you smiling. Yeah, you know, I've written about the Cadillac tax a few times, and sort of here is how I think about it. I think about it. This is a provision that economists love. They all love it. I have never talked to an economist who does not love the Cadillac tax. Uh, basically, everyone else dislikes it. Um, it is except as uh, I think Dan Diamond wrote that economists and fiscal hawks. <laughs> right. Okay. So maybe maybe some fiscal hawks who are not professional economists but amateur economists also. I think that know, was Dan. Yeah. To the economists. Yeah. Um, so you know what the Cadillac tax was designed to do is it was designed to say the very most expensive health insurance plans are probably so generous that they are encouraging the workers who get them to use more healthcare services than they need. And potentially, they are also uh, imposing very little price discipline, that the employers, because they just have this tax-advantaged ability to give people compensation in the form of health benefits, that maybe those plans aren't negotiating as hard as, po- as they could be with doctors and hospitals and drug companies for low prices. And so that is leading to those people paying too much for health care, but also to kind of health inflation that tends to infect the rest of the system. So the idea was if we lower the amount, if we create a disincentive to give people these super rich, super expensive health care benefits, that there will be all of these uh, good things that will flow from that, that people will, uh, if they have a little bit more of a deductible, say, they'll be a little more prudent in their use of health care services, that the disincentive to pay these high prices will cause employers to negotiate harder on behalf of their workers for prices. And also that if people are getting less of their compensation as health benefits, they might get higher wages. Unions have been opposed to the Cadillac tax. From the start. From the very beginning, from before it was nicknamed the Cadillac tax. And the ex- when it was back, still one was the excise tax. Um, they have nego- Many unions have negotiated big, rich um, health plans, uh, health, health, health benefits In lieu instead of wages. Of wages. Right. And, you know, all of us know that over the last 10 or 15 years, there's been an increasing amount of research that more health care is not always better health, that more health care can sometimes be even bad for you, or you can do something less invasive and cheaper. But that's not the way a lot of Americans think. It is more as better. They fought for these benefits. They didn't want them taxed. There are some economists, as I totally agree with Margaret, that the economists love this. They don't necessarily all love the way it was designed. That you know, th- There are other ways that you could have got at restricting or taxing or limiting or doing something to these very generous plans with the, the incentives that they create that didn't look exactly like this. But the point is, a lot of the major pay-fors in the Affordable Care Act have been suspended, 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 suspended. This one it looks like it's bound for repeal. Um, and it is a larger reminder, as if we needed them, that cutting health care costs is a politically hard thing to do. It is way easier to give something than it is to take something. My take on this is that over the last, now we're nine years out from the Affordable Care Act being passed, the biggest health care problem right now politically is how much people are spending out of pocket, that we've got many more high deductible plans, um, 
we have coinsurance instead of copay, so people are paying a percentage of sometimes very big bills. And that what the Cadillac tax would do, of course, is it would it would drive employers to make their plans less generous, um, which I think is not what the politics are right now, which I think is probably why it's going to get repealed. Yeah, I mean, people really? expect a lot more from their health insurance now than they used to. Um, and it's indexed so that more people get covered by it because of healthcare inflation and insurance inflation. What started out as, you know, touching X number of people is now X times X. Yeah. All right. Well, the other big news of the week is on the reproductive health front. Literally just after we finished taping last week, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ended its stay of the Trump administration's new rules for the Title X family planning program. Uh, On Tuesday, the Trump administration announced it would begin enforcing parts of the rules immediately, including a ban on abortion referrals at federally funded family planning clinics. Planned Parenthood immediately said it would stop participating in the program for now because it considers those rules unethical and does not want their practitioners to be practicing unethical medicine. Oh, and Planned Parenthood also fired its brand new president, former Baltimore Health Commissioner Lena Wen, ostensibly over philosophical issues, but apparently over management issues as well. How big a mess is this for Planned Parenthood? Joanne, you guys have been writing about this all week. It's a big mess. I mean, Planned Parenthood is, I mean, the the, the ostensible ideological fight was that Dr. Wen, Lena Wen, wanted to stress the health aspects of of Planned Parenthood because it does a lot more than abortion and other people inside wanted to, you know, it's a political, it's also a political activity. I think all of us at the table have spoken to Lena and we've all heard her talk about politics. Um, There were clearly personality and management issues. Several top, quite a few top people had left since she took, she, she took over. She lasted less than a year. It's less, I'm less interested in the personality conflict as the role of Planned Parenthood. Abortion rights are in fact in jeopardy. We don't know what the courts will do. We do not know when they will do it. We, you know, Margot of the Times had a great piece today looking at various scenarios and mapping them out. We'll come back to that, I guess. But they're under attack. Title 10, laws in the states, and they're in disarray. Um, who is going to speak for them? And, you know, I read somewhere, and I don't have, uh, maybe one of you wrote this, and I don't have independent confirmation. I heard that their fundraising was way off, too. And that sort of surprised me because, you would think that with all these states threatening to close the last clinic in Missouri, threatening to close the last clinic in Mississippi, threatening to cut off, you know, abortion in six weeks, that I would have thought that, you know, their fundraising money, would be up. I would have yeah. thought it would be raining from the sky. So something is up there, too. Lena Wen's exit has also sort of opened the door to anti-abortion advocates who are saying, you know, that abortion is not health care and that, you know, Planned Parenthood really sees this as a political issue. So everything that's going down, you really see advocates seizing on that um, as another line of attack um, as, you know, we kind of head into 2020. And I, I don't think it, I think they said they're not going to even be picking um, 20, someone else until 20. Until 2020. So they're probably going to have an acting director throughout that whole period. Yeah, that's a that's a long time. I mean, I've been covering I've been covering efforts to defund Planned Parenthood since I started on the health beat in 1986. So this is nothing. And they had and they predated that. I'm just saying that they they really started in the, the early 1980s that Planned Parenthood became this big symbol of the abortion industry, even though that's not always the case. Only half of Planned Parenthoods even offer abortion. Um, but but it was the, the anti-abortion movement. It was always something that they could point to. So and Congress has been unwilling so far to uh, to vote to defund Planned Parenthood. These rules are sort of the, the closest that they have gotten so far. Um, but the it, it is 
a little bit surprising to me that the organization, which is, I think, at the closest point to being defunded, as it ever has been, or at least in part, um, is in such disarray. It is a big chunk of defunding. Title X was a significant funder of Planned Parenthood. Medicaid, Planned Parenthood can still get Medicaid, and that is a bigger funder. I do not remember the numbers off the top of my head. We'll just say it's it's more money from Medicaid. I don't it is. Wanna... I think Medicaid is like 60% of their funding. Right, and I don't want to recite wrong numbers. Um, but they still, at this point, because that's also going to be fought about, and states, um, or is there states that would like to remove it from Planned Parenthood? There's some complicated legal issues there. Um, so they have not been defunded. They have been partly defunded, and they have been, it is significant. In addition, because Planned Parenthood is a provider of contraception and other women's health services. Whether or not you like abortion or do not like abortion, it is true that there are women and, and I guess some men who go to Planned Parenthood. For there are things, a lot of men you know, who go to Planned Parenthood. For other kinds of primary and reproductive health, including STD testing and HIV and other things like that. There will be there there are going to be states in this in this country that do not have a Title X grantee. Um, because it's, there, states are not, there are a few states that are not participating anymore under the new rules. There are a few states that are still deciding what to do. There are a few states where Planned Parenthood was either the sole or dominant recipient of Title X grants. It is important to remember that Title X never paid for abortion. That's not the change. Federal tax dollars do not go to abortion except under very limited circumstances. The Hyde Amendment has been in effect since the mid-70s, 76, I think. Um, Planned Parenthood, and, and Title X actually predated Hyde. Um, Roe v. Wade. This is family planning money. This is contraception money. So the the change here was that the the clinics cannot talk about abortion, cannot refer a woman to abortion, and that's that really moved the line in terms of eligibility and participation. And we should point out that the the legal uh, fight is not done. It is the the uh, the regulations are now before the the full Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Whatever they decide will probably be appealed to the Supreme Court. Um, the Supreme Court. Upheld similar rules back in 1991. And a more liberal Supreme Court. Right, and a more liberal Supreme Court, although not much more liberal Supreme Court. Um, the, the Affordable Care Act actually tried to obviate this, so it will be interesting to see, you know, the, the, the Affordable Care Act sort of anticipating that this might happen someday, uh, tried to say that, you know, no, this this you you can't do this. Um, so the the legal fight will continue, and obviously we will keep I mean, I think none of us know what the Supreme Court is going to do on Roe v. Wade, right? But I think we all anticipate there's a pretty good chance that the Supreme Court will, in fact, uphold the Title X rules under the Trump administration. Yes, it just might take a while. Right, and by then it might not be the Trump administration, but who knows? Well, I'm not predicting that. All right. <laughs> Also on Capitol Hill this week, uh, lawmakers in both the House and Senate are trying to come up with a package of bills that would start to address prescription drug costs, one of the big popular political issues for both parties this year. Um, But as a timely piece in Stat News points out, the pharmaceutical industry so far is still winning in Washington. Um, True, or do we really need to wait and see more? Kimberly. Well, there were a couple of, um, you know, they they've, they have notched a couple of wins recently. Um, they they the sued. Industry. Yes, yes, the pharmaceutical industry. Um, they sued the Trump administration over rules that said that uh, drug companies had to include list prices in their TV commercials, and that's been blocked in the courts. Um, there was um, a, a win then for uh, pharmaceutical benefit managers who negotiate drug prices um, on behalf of um, patients 
and uh, they were able to strike down um, another proposal that the Trump administration put forward. The rebate rule. Um, exactly, exactly. And so... Well, uh, pharma sort of wanted yeah. the rebate rule. They, yeah. they did. They did. I'm, I'm just talking, you know, Yeah, I know. You're general. talking... In, right. In, yeah. Sort of. Yeah. And, you know, where... Because there's more than just pharmaceutical companies that are involved in the high prices that patients pay. There are all these different players, and that's, you know, part of the reason why, you know, we see some of the high pricing that we do. Um, but so, you know, the, the measures that are making their way through Congress... There, there still is fear among conservatives that Trump will strike a deal with um, Nancy Pelosi over um, allowing Medicare to negotiate in some way. Um, I've talked to a lot of conservatives over the past week, and they're kind of, you know, thinking that he might get fed up um, with the lack of action on this. Um, I, he, from everyone I hear, he's very frustrated. It's one of the only things that he talks about when he, you know, sees um, um, health officials, um, and so. Right now, the measures that are really advancing have more to do with allowing generics to move to market faster, which doesn't necessarily you know, hurt pharmaceutical companies. But there's still two things on the table. Well, there's two things and a question mark on the table. We don't yet know what Senator Wyden and Senator Grassley, uh, Senator Grassley being the chairman of the um, very powerful Senate Finance Committee, and not, you know, he's a conservative guy, but he's never been a big friend of pharma's. And, you know, all signs are he wants to do something and he would like it to be bipartisan. We don't don't know yet what they're going to do. We were supposed to find out, I believe, in June, and it is now July. Um, the second thing is the importation. Trump seems to like importation, whether it goes forward on a state-by-state level or whether it's going to be a federal. We don't know the scenario there. It's by got, importation, you mean from Im- importing, yes, importing other countries' lower prices. Yeah, Canada and or other countries. Um, there are a whole lot of questions about whether, and among other things, does Canada have enough drugs to supply the United States? Um, probably not. Definitely does, not. Right? Does Canada have enough drugs to supply? <laughs> Florida, who's the one that's talking? No, but they about probably this. do for Vermont. Um, the the uh, so there are a whole lot of issues about whether how much of a I mean reimportation sounds good, but like you know th- there's like you can make an argument instead of importing cheaper drugs, you could maybe just make cheaper drugs. The big boogeyman and the big surprise is that Trump is still talking about referencing United States drug prices for at least some expensive drugs, maybe not every drug, to international prices, to the prices that develop, you know, a set of developed countries do pay. And that would be a really big change with ripple effects to the pharmaceutical market worldwide. And they're still talking about it. Now, is that a threat to make Grassley and Wyden do something? Or do they really want to index U.S. prices to a European plus Japan and New Zealand or whatever benchmark? Slovenia, I think. Slovenia, they're in Europe, though. <laughs> it's like a seven, it's a weird mishmash of, I think, 17 countries. Do they really want to do, you know, the, it's called IPI. Do they really want to do this international linking our prices to the world's cheaper prices? Or is it a, a bargaining chip? We don't know. I talked to someone in the White House the other day who said, wait and see, which was not that illuminating. Except I, they didn't take, they have not taken that off the table. I am just fascinated by this idea of international price indexing for drugs because it is a very radical idea that in some ways says, you know, we, the U.S. government, are powerless to lower prices in any kind of direct way to decide what appropriate prices are ourselves. What we'd like to do is outsource that decision to other governments whose healthcare systems we typically think of as uh, having problems. Or socialists. Or socialists in many cases. And the thing that is interesting to me about this idea is the way in which it seems to have interested politicians across the political spectrum. So it is not true that there's like 
a ton of really broad bipartisan support for this idea. But the people who advocate for it are a little bit all over the map. So obviously, we have President Trump, who is considering uh, doing a regulatory action to test out this idea for a group of drugs that are given to patients in the hospital or in their doctor's offices. Uh, We had... uh, Presidential candidate Kamala Harris this week come out with her prescription drug proposal, which would use this interna- a sort of international price index for pricing all drugs. Uh, that's sort of someone, you know, very much from the left who's embracing the same idea. And then uh, there's also, uh, I learned recently, Rick Scott, the um, senator from Florida, has a bill that would um, condition FDA approval of drugs on their list price being the lowest of any of these countries in the world. So not every, any country in the world, but any of these countries kind of in a group of developed nations. So uh, the politics of this issue are just very, very interesting. I think they are not breaking down along the traditional lines. I think the people's support for them are much more idiosyncratic, which perhaps reflects uh, what an unusual idea this is. I would just add that, outside the normal debate it is. This is sort of like the idea of a Rick Scott, Bernie Sanders joint kind of initiative <laughs> is a little bit mind blowing, but that's that is sort of where we are on drug prices. But that was true of the reimport- reimportation fights of the early 2000s, leading up once Medicare started paying for drugs in 2003, that sort of went away. But for the four or five years leading up to that, there was a huge push to allow importation from Canada and other countries with price controls. And it also was sort of a bizarre political group of very liberal members, some very liberal members, and some very conservative members. And yeah, I remember. I remember traveling to the Canadian border with John McCain when he was running for president, where he, you know, was sort of standing right there talking about how he was a pioneer in this particular idea. Exactly. Dr- drug prices make strange political bedfellows. All right. Well, one more this week. Um, uh, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar on Wednesday highlighted a drop in the number of drug overdose deaths. It's the first time we've seen a decrease since when, Margo? Was it like 1990? Yeah. Um, How big a deal is this? You you guys were arguing amongst yourselves yesterday. So argue for the audience. (laughs) I think we do not know. Uh, It is a 5% decline. It is the first year there has been a decline in, as we just said, 30 years. So Uh, That is good news, and that is important news. But everyone that I talked to who is an expert in this epidemic said that they really can't predict whether this is a sign that the overdose death epidemic has reached its peak and is starting to trend downwards and that we'll see this trend reverse or whether this is a blip and the numbers are going to go back up again next year. I think, uh, you know, there are a lot of reasons to think uh, that, uh, you know, we're moving in a direction that is conducive to reduced overdose deaths. But there also are a lot of worrying signs in the data as well. And the fact that no one can really point to, oh, we did this and this caused that in a very clearly demonstrable way does suggest a lot of uncertainty about what the future looks like. So I, can I just point out a couple of details under the hood? So the overall overdose number seems to have gone down by about 5% in 2018 relative to 2017, which again was like unbelievable believable record-breaking year. Um, But underneath the hood of that, there were declines in the number of deaths due to prescription uh, painkiller medications. And obviously, we've had a lot of public policy designed to uh, reduce prescribing and other kinds of trafficking of those pills. But there were increases in deaths from fentanyl. So these are the synthetic opioids that are typically distributed illicitly, often uh, 
mixed in with heroin or sold as heroin, but, uh, you know, in fact, just these fentanyls. And those have been the big cause of the spike in deaths. You know, a lot of experts think these drugs are very strong. They're very unpredictable. People are injecting them and it's very hard to control the dose. And that's why we saw a lot of people dying. Those numbers continue to go up. So there are still a lot of people using opioids who are at risk and they are still continuing to have difficulty with this changing drug supply. There also have been pretty substantial increases in the number of overdose deaths due to stimulant drugs, uh, particularly methamphetamine and cocaine. And this actually seems really puzzling to a lot of health officials. Both local and state health officials don't exactly understand why this is happening. And they're very worried about how to respond to it because even though the opioid crisis has been so terrible and so many people have died, we at least know how to treat addiction to opioids. There are a number of uh, medications that really seem to help people who have opioid addictions, uh, you know, stay clean or uh, maybe not clean is the wrong word, but help them recover from their addictions and get out of the danger zone of overdose. Uh, we don't have anything like that for methamphetamine or cocaine. And so if these numbers continue to escalate, if we see more and more people using these drugs and using them in a way that puts them at risk of death, we don't have great public policy solutions that can help those people get better and get out of risk in the same way. Well, our, first of all, our opioid, even the good opioid treatment programs have a you know, a relapse rate of about 50%. So we have a long way to go on treating everything. I agree with a lot of what Margaret said. We have a drug abuse, a drug addiction, a mental health crisis that is bigger than opioids, even though opioids deservedly, because so many people were dying, have gotten the lion's share of the public attention, and they needed to. However, it's a bigger problem. Fentanyl is appearing mixed in with other drugs. People who take cocaine do not know that fentanyl is in their drug. And they're, you know, they're, they're, it's not a nationwide everywhere problem, but there have been some hot spots with that and deaths. In addition, the question I ask and that I have not had, I don't know that we know the answer. Obviously, it's a good thing that, I mean, these are provisional figures, but the provisional trends have been apparent for several months. It is a good thing that fewer people are dying. It's a great thing that fewer people are dying. But my question is, are there fewer overdoses or are we just getting better at saving lives of people who overdose because we've got uh, overdose drugs, we've got Narcan and and, um, and because know, Congress threw a lot of money at making sure that a lot that those were a lot the, more available. People have it in the house. People have addicts or users or uh, people who are who who have substance abuse. They're they're carrying it. They're carrying it for their friends. Police departments, EMTs, schools. Um, Delta Airlines today said they're going to put it on their planes because there was apparently a death in one of them. So are we getting better? So there's the fatal overdose. The numbers look like they're going down. But what about the universe of overdoses? And I don't know the answer, and I've asked, and I'm not sure we actually know that because the, the, really the real challenge is getting people treatment and avoiding addiction in the first place. Saving their lives is a great thing, but we don't want to get to the point. I mean, we should be stopping it as a systemic way of addressing mental illness and substance abuse and addiction in our country, and we are nowhere near and if, okay. if we want to be really bleak, so, you know, I just made a bunch of calls around and I said, well, what explains this? And there were various theories that were, everyone said, we don't know. Here are some, let me speculate. Everyone's going to speculate. Here are my speculations. So they mentioned, for example, uh, the thing that Joanne just mentioned, that we have these antidotes that can reverse an overdose. Those have been distributed more widely. So that's like one possible theory. Another is it does seem like more people are using these medication treatments for addiction that are more effective than the older kinds of treatments. So maybe more people are getting Treated. And Congress has put money into that. I mean, on a bipartisan basis, there is more money going to treat. But one really bleak theory that I heard is just that 
you know, so many people have died from fentanyl overdoses that it may be that the pool of people who are continuing to use has just gotten smaller. And so even though the overdose rate for people who use fentanyl is still enormously high, there just are fewer of them left. And I'm not I don't think that is definitely true. That's not something that's easily measured because we don't know how many people are addicted with any kind of precision. But uh, I think it is just a reminder of how bad the crisis remains, despite this big public policy response and despite this uh, small amount of good news that we should be happy about. And it's also a danger that people look at these figures, that policymakers look at these figures, which are great. I mean, it's good news that, you know, that's a lot of fewer deaths. But they think, okay, problem solved, because the problem is not solved. As a country, we have a very short attention span. We're going into an election year. You and and this is a subtle, complicated problem, and it's easy to see a headline: overdose deaths drop, and people move on. I don't think lawmakers are that simplistic. I don't think they are ready to totally move on on opioids. I'm not sure whether they're ready to take the next comprehensive step because there's a lot of undone things All right, well, on their to-do list. Another issue that we will definitely come back to. That is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health. Margo, why don't you start this week? Uh, I wanted to recommend an article from Bloomberg News. Deadly disease is treatable, but newborn screening patchwork leaves many vulnerable. Uh, This is an article from Michelle Cortez, who writes about a family uh, that has uh, two children who have a degenerative genetic disease that affects uh, motor neurons. And it turns out that that is a disease that can be tested for close to birth and for which there now is a effective gene therapy drug that is the most effective when it is administered right away, early in the life of the infant. And what she found is that the testing for this particular disorder and for other disorders like it is very variable by state. And so what that means is that uh, these are diseases that are treatable and where early treatment really matters, but there are a lot of infants who aren't getting that screening and aren't getting that treatment and are living with uh, more disease and disability as a result of that. So it's sort of a reminder of all the variation that we have around the country in our healthcare system. And I think it is also, to me, a reminder, you know, we talk a lot about how expensive these kinds of treatments are, these new gene therapy treatments that are coming on the market. I feel like so often we talk about them in the context of the drug pricing discussion. But I think it's also really important just to remember, you know, how life-changing these kinds of drugs can be and how important uh, time is. You know, a lot of other countries that pay less for uh, life-saving drugs also sometimes have to wait longer to get them. And for some children who are born today, uh, you know, uh, U.S. patients may like to have those drugs when their child is born and not several years later when they're a little cheaper. Joanne. Uh, Dr. Daniel Barron, who's a uh, resident in psychiatry at uh, Yale, wrote on the Scientific American blog, Why Doctors Are Drowning in Medical School Debt. I think we've all been familiar with the conversation. They have a lot of debt. It's one reason some of them don't go into primary care. It's not the only reason that they go into higher paid specialties. However, uh, Barron went to talk to the dean of NYU Medical School, which has made medical education free, and said, you know, why does it cost so much? And the dean basically said, I got a lot of deadwood on my faculty. That's the shorthand. And he then found that there's no way of knowing where the medical school tuition dollars do go, that the regulatory authorities are clueless. 
It, yeah, it's it's really it's quite an eye opening piece, and I've spent a lot of time and, looking at medical education. Right, and he and his wife together, and I regret that I don't have her name printed out because I hate it when the wife is just re- referred to as the wife, but it's not in this piece of but paper. But also a doctor, also <laughs> with medical also school debt. She's also a doctor, yes. and the two of them have three hundred thousand dollars of debt. Um, I picked a story from Washingtonian Magazine by Britt Peterson. It's called DC Types Have Been Flocking to Shrinks Ever Since Trump Won, and a lot of the therapists are miserable. Um, and it goes into not just um, you know how these therapists have difficulty hearing about some of the um, hearing from some of their patients about some of their difficulties, but also personal difficulties that they have faced uh, seeing um, the Trump administration in action. Well, I have a story from the New York Times upshot. It's called Where Roe v. Wade Matters Most, and it's by, Margo, help me pronounce your colleague's name. Kwachang Bui. Thank you. Uh, uh, Claire Kane Miller and Margo. It's about a new study that updates studies from the past two decades about what would happen to abortion access if Roe v. Wade is overturned by the Supreme Court. Uh, a reminder that would not make abortion illegal, but it would give states the right to make it illegal if they want. And the upshot, pun intended, is that women's access to abortion will depend not just on where they live, but whether they have the time and money to travel. In large parts of the country, that's actually already true. Abortion access is severely limited in some states, even as it remains legal. But if Roe v. Wade were to go away, access would be obviously much more widely unavailable. Um, So that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We'll do another Ask Us Anything next month, so let us know what you want us to answer. We are at What the Health, all one word at kff.org or you can tweet me I'm at Jay Rovner at Sanger Katz at Joanne Kennan at Leonard KL we will be back in your feed next week in the meantime be healthy be healthy